Alrighty. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> you got pictures and everything. Like the visual aids. Yeah. Anyways, hello everybody. This is Alma. I'm one half of the uh, Tipsy Tales duo. I'm here with my son, Mario. Hi, everyone. Yvette couldn't be with us tonight because she's dealing with a death in the family. So um, we're just going to give her our condolences and we wish she was with us tonight, but um, she'll be back next week. Like I said, this is my son, Mario. He's uh, so graciously agreed to read the the true crime half of our um, podcast segment. And what do you got for us, Mario? Well, today I decided to do a story on the Axeman of New Orleans, or as I like to call him, the Jazzman. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. What are we drinking? So we're not doing wine tonight because, um, as I've mentioned before on the podcast, um, I only have Mario for a few more weeks. Uh, him and his brother have decided to buy a house. And um, once he's gone, that's the last of my children to leave. So we're drinking together tonight. We're drinking his favorite drink. And that is... Disarono. <laughs> anyway, so let's, uh, let's say cheers. 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 So go ahead. All right. So... To me, something I always, well, crime-wise, something I always thought was interesting was crime early on before there was, you know, really established police right. or even uh, forensic evidence the way they have now. So I decided to do something, uh, taking this a little back. Okay. The Axeman of New Orleans. A rather interesting case as far as early 19th century murder cases go. The Axeman of New Orleans was an unidentified serial killer active from May 23rd, 1918 to October 1919. During his reign of terror, he committed a total of six murders and injured 12 others. Oh, wow. The killer would break in through a panel on the back door that was removed with a chisel and then proceed to commit his crimes with either axe or straight razor which would then be left by the front door of the victim's house. The first murders occurred on May 22, 1918. The victims being Joseph Maggio and an Italian grocer and his wife Catherine who were attacked while sleeping at their home on the corner of Upperland and Magnolia Streets, where they conducted a bar room and grocery. The killer broke into the home and then proceeded to cut the couple's throats with a straight razor. Ooh. Upon leaving, he bashed their heads with an axe perhaps in order to conceal the real cause of death. Joseph survived the attack, but died minutes after being discovered by his brothers Jake and Andrew Maggio. Catherine died prior to the brothers' arrival, her throat having been cut so deep that her head was nearly severed from her shoulders. Oh my god. In the apartment, law enforcement agents found the bloody clothes of the murderer, as he had obviously changed into a clean set of clothes before fleeing the scene. A complete search of the premises was not completed by police after the bodies were removed. Yet later, the bloody razor was found on the lawn of a neighboring property. The second attack occurred in the early hours of June 27, 1918, on Louis Bessemer and his mistress, Harriet Lowe. Bessemer was struck with a hatchet above his right temple while he slept, which resulted in a possible skull fracture. Oh my god. Lowe was hacked over the left ear and found unconscious when police arrived at the scene. The couple was discovered shortly after 7 a.m. in the morning on the attack by Joe Zonka, a driver of a bakery wagon who had come to the grocery in order to make a routine delivery. Oh, wow. Okay, so what was the time frame again? It was like right at the turn of the century? Yes, 1918 through 1919 is when these murders okay, were. Okay, so literally still like horse-drawn carriages... Like, right on the verge of the car. Oh, yeah. I'm sure when this guy arrived, he was uh, on his horse when he pulled up and decided to hop over. 
Zonka found both Besmer and Lowe in a puddle of their own blood, both bleeding from their heads. The axe, which had belonged to Bessemer himself, was found in the bathroom of the apartment. Bessemer later stated to police that he had been sleeping when he was bashed with the hatchet. Almost immediately, police arrested potential suspect Louis Ubicon, a 41-year-old African-American man who had been employed in Bessemer's store just a week before the attacks. Because, of course, turn I of the century, as you do. <laughs> an African-American man, you know, no other suspects. Well, they got to nab him, right? Okay. No evidence existed which could have proved the man guilty, yet police arrested him anyway, stating that Ubicon had offered conflicting accounts of his whereabouts on the morning of the attack. Shortly after the attempted murder, Lowe stated that she remembered having been attacked by a mulatto man, yet her statement was discounted by police due to her disillusioned state. The third attack occurred on August 15, 1918, with the victim being 28-year-old Anna Schneider, who was eight months pregnant at the time. Oh. Schneider awoke to found, find a dark figure standing over her before she was bashed in the face repeatedly. Her scalp had been cut open and her face was completely covered in blood. Mich so, he's mm -hmm. using, like, a, an axe the whole time. Yes, uh, the axes were never his. They were owned by the victims. Right, because everybody had an axe ba back then. Yeah, they had to chop wood or right. maybe cut something open. So, it was just a common tool to have around. Right. Which made it a lot easier for him. Exactly. He didn't have to carry it around. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Miss Schneider was discovered after midnight by her husband, Ed Schneider, who was returning late from work. Schneider claimed that she remembered nothing of the attack and gave birth to a healthy baby girl two days after the incident. Wow. Yeah. So she survived and she ended up having a kid. Oh, glad that happened. Um, her husband told police that nothing was stolen from the house besides six or seven dollars that had been in his wallet, which at the time I'm guessing was a lot of money. Now it's just chump change, you know? Right. <laughs> The windows and doors of the apartment appear to have been not have been forced open, and authorities concluded that the woman was most likely attacked with a lamp that had been on a nearby table. The fourth attack came on August 10, 1918. This time, elderly Joseph Romano, who lived with his two nieces, Pauline and Mary Bruno at the time. The sisters awoke to the sound of a struggle coming from the adjacent room where Joseph stayed. Upon entering the room, the sisters discovered that their uncle had taken a serious blow to his head, which resulted in two open cuts. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna. Have, I'm sorry. That's not funny at all. But the dogs are like going crazy. They have. My dogs love Mario to death, and they have to be in every room that he's in. So right now they were all crying. We have three big dogs, and I'm about to throw them out. <laughs> Hold on, just a second. And we're back. Hello. All right. So back to it. The assailant was fleeing the scene at the, as the time they arrived. Yet the girls were able to distinguish that he was a dark-skinned, heavy-set man who wore a dark suit and a slouched hat. Romano, although seriously injured, was able to walk to the ambulance once it arrived. Yet died two days later due to the severe head trauma. The home had been ransacked. Yet yet no items were stolen from the house. Authorities found a bloody axe in the backyard and discovered that a panel on the back door had been chilled away. So obviously this guy kind of has a, uh, a modus operandi in how he does things. Right. Um, oh. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, Romano murder created a state of extreme chaos in the city, with residents living in constant fear of an Axeman attack. Police received a slew of reports in which citizens claimed to have seen an Axeman lurking in New Orleans neighborhoods. The fifth, and arguably the most tragic attack, happened on the night of March 19, 1919. The victims were Charles Cordemiglia, an immigrant who lived with his wife Rosie and infant daughter Mary on the corner of Jefferson Avenue and 2nd Street in Gretna, Louisiana. 
a New Orleans suburb across the Mississippi River. While sleeping that night, the Axeman broke in and attacked the family who were all sleeping in the bed, striking both Rose and Charles in the head and killing Mary with a blow to the neck. Wow. Screams were heard coming from the Cordomiglia residence. Neighbor Orlando Giordano rushed across the street to investigate. Upon his arrival, the, own, the unknown intruder fled. Rosie stood in the, door, the doorway with a serious head wound, clutching her deceased daughter. Oh. Charles laid on the floor, bleeding profusely. The couple was rushed to the charity hospital where it was discovered that both had suffered skull fractures. Nothing was stolen from the house, but a panel on the back door had been chiseled away and a bloody axe was found on the back porch of the home. Charles was released two days later, while his wife remained in the care of doctors. Upon gaining full consciousness, Rosie made claims that Orlando Giordano, the man who came to investigate, was the one who attacked them. Really? Yeah. He also claimed, She also claimed that his son, 18-year-old Frank, was responsible for the attacks. Orlando, a 69-year-old man, was in too poor of health to have committed the crimes, and Frank Giordano... More than six feet tall and weighing 200 pounds would not would have been too large to fit through the panel on the back door. Charles Cordomiglia vehemently, vehemently dis- denied his wife's claims, yet police nonetheless arrested the two and charged them with murder. The men would later be found guilty. Frank was sentenced to hang and his father to life in prison. Charles divorced his wife after the trial. Almost a year later, Rosie announced that she had falsely accused the two of jealousy and spite. Wait, what? Yeah. Okay, I'm so confused. So, for whatever reason, she was attacked, you know, and uh, she decided it was a way to get at them. She had no substantial proof, and they had no substantial proof either. Right. And so, so she, she decided just used it as a way to to get at these two that she didn't like. Wow. Well, okay. Yeah. So See. they weren't they weren't hanged or anything. No. Okay. So, yeah, they were actually released after she made just these. in time. Yeah. All right. Okay. <laughs> Almost a year later, Rosie announced that she had falsely accused the two out of jealousy and spite. Her statement was the only evidence against the Giordanos, and they were released from jail shortly thereafter. The sixth attack happened on the night of August 10th, 1919, when Steve Boca, waking up and being assaulted after finding a dark figure looming over his bed where he was knocked out. Upon regaining consciousness, Boca ran to the street to, the street to investigate the intrusion and found that his head had been cracked open. The grocer ran to the home of his neighbor, Frank Ganusa, where he lost consciousness and collapsed. Nothing had been taken from the home, yet once again a panel on the back door of the home had been chiseled away. What the heck? Boca recovered from his injuries, but could not remember any details of the trauma. The seventh attack took place September 3rd, 1919 on 19-year-old Sarah Lauman. Sarah's neighbors came to check on her because she had lived alone and broke into the home when Lauman did not answer. They discovered the 19-year-old lying unconscious on her bed, suffering from a severe head injury and missing several teeth. Wow. The intruder had entered the apartment through an open window and attacked the woman with a blunt object while she slept. A bloody axe was discovered on the front lawn of the building. Lauman recovered from her injuries, yet couldn't recall any details from the attack. So, like, he would knock them out first and then chop them with the axe? So, he would either, he would chisel pieces of the uh, back door away and then, you know, kind of slide in. Right. And then uh, he would either use an axe that was owned by them or Uh he would use, like, a razor knife or he would use just any blunt object that he could find. That he could find. Okay. Yeah. Mainly, it was an axe. Okay. 
So he would either use the blade or he would just use the back and hit okay. them with it. Okay, that's what I was... Um, let's see. Lauman recovered from her injuries that couldn't recall any details from the attack. The last attack occurred on the night of October 27th, 1919. The victim, Mike Pepitone, was killed after the Axeman broke into the house. His wife was awakened by a noise and arrived at the door of his bedroom, just as a large axe-wielding man was fleeing the scene. Mike had been struck in the head and was covered in his own blood. Blood spatter covered most of the room, including a painting of the Virgin Mary. Miss Pepitone, the mother of six children, was un unable to describe any characteristics of the killer. The Pepitone murder was the last of the alleged Axeman attacks. God, okay, so where does the jazz man come into this? So, none of the crimes were motivated by robbery, as nothing was ever removed from the houses. Most of the victims were Italian immigrants or Italian-American women, which led many to believe that the crimes were ethnically or sexually motivated. In the wake of the first few murders, news outlets began to sensationalize the crimes, with reports putting out ranging from mafia hitmen to a sexual sadist who preyed on women. Criminologists theorized that the Axemen killed men only when they got in the way of his attempts to murder women. Supported by cases in which women of the household were murdered, but not the man. A less plausible theory, and the jazz theory, is that the killer committed the murders in an attempt to promote jazz music. Suggested by a letter attributed <laughs> to the killer. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> um, published by several news outlets in which he stated that he would kill 15 minutes past midnight on March 19th, but would spare the lives of those who played jazz in their homes. And I have the letter here. And it reads as such, from, <laughs> uh, it stated, the letter comes from hell, March 13th, 1919, an esteemed mortal of New Orleans, the Axeman. From the, hell? That's, yeah. That's basically a ripoff from Jack the Ripper. I'm sure this guy had a very high self or uh, self-worth because yeah. the way he talks about himself a in high here. high opinion of himself. Mm -hmm. He says, they have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me for I am invisible even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I'm not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, besmeared with blood and brains of whom I sent below to keep me company. Oh my god, he's so dramatic. Yeah. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty Francis Joseph. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the Axeman. I don't think there is any need of such a warning, for I feel sure the police will always dodge me as they have in the past. They are wise and know when to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night at will, and I, was, I could slay thousands of your best citizens and the worst, for I am in a close relationship with the angel of death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15, earthly time <laughs> is that you did you no he actually put that in there <laughs> um on next tuesday night i'm going to pass over new orleans in my infinite mercy 
I am going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that ever every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. I'm hearing jazz music in the background <laughs> here. So obviously this guy loved his jazz music enough Apparently. He was threatening people who didn't listen to it with murder. If everyone has a jazz band going, well then, so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz out on that specific, specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and it is, it is about time I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse, hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee, I have been, am, am, and will be the worst spirit that has ever existed in either fact or realm of fancy. And the, the worst man. writer ever. Yeah. <laughs> this guy sounds like he was actually just some random guy who was like, you know what? I'm going to capitalize on this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That was, that was too much. That's it's, probably like, I don't know. Never mind. Obviously, this guy had uh, something for dramatics. Yeah, obviously. Okay, I've never heard anything like that besides maybe the Zodiac Killer. That's probably the most dramatic I've ever heard. Did he but ever I never... put out letters? Yeah. He did? Yeah. Oh, okay. I've never heard about that. Oh, what? Well, I mean, I never studied too much into the Zodiac Killer to know. Okay. Yeah, but I didn't know that he put out letters. I know he killed people. Right. But yeah. other than that. Yeah, he did. He wrote some letters. Well. We're going to have to watch a movie. You think serial killers would want to be a little more low-key? About their murders? No, because a lot known. of them, like like you said, they have a high opinion of themselves and they think they're smarter than everybody out there, so you're never going to catch them. In they're the Zodiac that, Killer's case, yeah. That line between psychopath and sociopath? Yeah. Between wanting attention and wanting to kill people, too? Right. <laughs> so, did they ever catch this guy? They had a couple suspects, but uh, no one was ever listed or named as the official killer. Shut up. They yeah. never caught him. Nope. Okay. So is that pretty much it? That was pretty much it. Wow. <laughs> that letter. <laughs> so how'd you like researching that? It wasn't too bad. No? Nah, I liked it. Did you it. enjoy it? Mm-hmm. Now, we have your story to get to. Drinking this Disserano. So you made the Disserano sour. Yeah, and we gotta say that it does taste exactly like cough medicine. <laughs> I was gonna say. If I had some Pepsi, I would've mixed it in with it, but it, right. uh, it doesn't taste fantastic. By itself, it's okay. Yeah, it's okay, but it is making me feel nice and warm and fuzzy. When I ask you about Siberia, what comes to mind? Um, cold. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So my story, and it's usually I do something like kind of ghostly or whatever, but this one's more weird history. The Dyatlov Pass incident. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. Yes, several times. I actually liked reading about it. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. So let's see if I pique your interest with this all right so we're taking it all the way to russia it's the late it's late january 1959 a group of 10 people start out on a ski trek across the northern urals and Severodslak oblast so i'm gonna apologize in advance because i'm probably gonna just butcher butcher everybody's <laughs> name but here we go so in all the group was made up of eight men and two women and was led by igor dyatlov um, whom the pass is now named after, who was 23 at the time. He was held in high regard for his knowledge of cross-country skiing. Most of them were students of Ural Polytechnical Institute, now the Ural Federal University. The group's goal was to hike 
10 kilometers north of what would later become known as Dyatlov Pass to a mountain called Otorten. Part of the trek saw them crossing the mountain Kolat Syakl, which to locals translates as Dead Mountain or Mountain of the Dead. Wow, great place to go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Considering. The trek itself was rated a Category 3 due to the terrain and the intensity of the hike. But all in the group, for the most part, were very experienced. So there was no worries. The names of all the hikers, um, besides uh, Dyatlov, uh, there was Yuri Yudin, Gregory Krivonchenko, who was 24, uh, Yuri Doroshenko, 24, uh, Zina Komagorova, 22, Rustem Slobodin, I hope I said that right, 23. They're all pretty young. Nicholas Desbo Bringolai. I know I didn't say that one right. 24. <laughs> Ludmila Dubanina, 21. Alexander Kolovatov, 25. And lastly, Alexander Zoloteryov, 37. Wow. Okay, now that I got past that. Quite the name. <laughs> <laughs> January 25th, the group arrived by train at Evdel, a city centered at the northern province of Sverdlovsk Oblast. From here, they take a truck to Vizai, which is basically the last inhabited settlement so far north before you leave civilization behind, and then it's just nothing but snow and trees and, and wolves. Yeah, and maybe yetis. <laughs> on January 27th, they began their trip, but on the 28th, Yuri Yudin becomes sick. Um, He has to turn back and he leaves his friends to continue on their journey without him. It would be the last time that Yuri would see his friends alive. What happens next is based on reconstruction of events based on pictures, because pretty much all of them have cameras, lucky for us, journal entries, and of course, all the investigation that came after it. For the next four days, the remaining nine ski across the frozen landscape and uninhabited areas following ancient trails of the local Mansi tribe, which blew me away because when I think of tribes or indigenous people, I don't usually think of Russia. Oh, yeah. I know there was a lot of, well, it's uh, kind of like, um, I mean, I'm going a bit into paleo stuff, but, you know, the theory is that. Uh, Native Americans traveled from Europe or, you know, paleo people. Right. And uh, basically. Across the Bering Straits. Yeah. So they came from like Russia and all that first. Right. Well, and then I, so I got curious and I started looking up pictures of this Mansi tribe and they look like Apaches. Yeah. I was tripping out. So anyways, that that's for further research there. Anyways, the Mansi are the indigenous people that called the Ural Mountains and the surrounding area home. The Mansi had several legends about the destination of the hiking group, which were more than evidence in how the name translated from the Mansi into English. The name of the mountain for which the group was headed, Otorton, literally translated as, don't go there. <laughs> it's in the name, <laughs> and you still went there. So from January 31st to February 1st, and like I'm just like, January, February, like... The- coldest cold and then in si- siberia like yeah. it has to be so cold the hike went without incident and for some reason most likely believed to be weather the team found itself on the eastern shoulder at a height of just below 3600 feet of the mountains named kolat siakl which was chillingly enough translated as the mountain of the dead as i mentioned before the assumed plan was to hike the path 
and make camp on the opposite side. But as snowstorms approached, the visibility decreased and the group became lost. They began to head west towards the top of Colat Seattle. Once they realized their mistake, they set up camp and decided to wait for tomorrow to finish their hike. And of course, tomorrow never comes. Mm-hmm. Um, some people have commented that there was like um, some trees not too far from where they were, which would have been a safer place to make camp. And they kind of wonder why they didn't make camp there. So was it more out in an open field where they kind of did it? Yeah. Oh, odd. Yeah, very odd. They make camp at around 5 p.m. the night of February 2nd, pitching their tent, which could sleep 11 people. So, like, you're thinking they're all making, like, separate tents. It's all one big tent. Yeah. And they would literally never see morning. Their last diary entries would show that they were all in good spirits and they were all having a wonderful time. They would even make their own mock newspaper. Temperatures that night dropped to a frigid negative 25 to negative 30 celsius which is 13 below and 22 below fahrenheit so pretty fucking cold oh yeah they apparently were not alarmed though even undressed that night before going to sleep and you know what i forgot to put in here was that when they were found there was actually alcohol in their system so they were they were drinking they were having a good time that night trying to stay a little bit warm in the cold right probably before he left dyatlov agreed to send a telegram to their sports club once he had arrived in vizhal or Vizhai. He expected they would be no later than February 12th. But Dyatlov mentioned to Yudin, um, that's the guy that left, early, that he could be longer. When the 12th day passed with no messages, no one was alerted, as expeditions through the pass were commonly delayed, probably. Due to the storms. Yeah, storms and weather and stuff like that. On February 20th, three weeks later, the relatives of the hikers alerted the head of the institute and he sends the first rescue groups, which consisted mostly of volunteer students and teachers. Between the days of February 21st through 25th, the authorities and the military were contacted to aid in the search. February 26th, the group's abandoned tent was found badly damaged. Mikhail Sheravin, the student who made the discovery, said that the tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. So they got out of there in a hurry. In a hurry. To be running out in the cold like that? Barefoot. Some of them were barefoot. Some of them just had their socks on. Yeah. Half dressed. Upon further investigation, it looks as if the tent had been cut from the inside, violently by some accounts, as if they were trying to escape in such a hurry that they couldn't be bothered to untie the tent loops. That's just crazy. Like panic. Panic mode? Pure panic. Especially hopping out, well, you know, in a craze just to try and get away from something. Right. But knowing how cold it is that you run out in basically your underwear. <laughs> right. Like that's a whole nother kind of level of panic. There was, um, and I didn't put it in here, but one of the theories or that somebody actually brought up and it was on, I think, a YouTube video. They were talking about the, there was a stovepipe sticking out of one of the pictures of the tent. And basically, um, one of them had their own like makeshift stove like to keep them warm in the mm-hmm. tent or whatever. So one of the theories was maybe it started smoking mm-hmm. and that they had cut the tent from the inside to vent it. Yeah. Some people said that, that that didn't make any sense because if that, you know, experienced hikers, if that was the case, they would have started throwing all of their stuff outside of the tent Yeah. right away. So I don't know. Anyways, I just wanted to mention that really quick. Eight or nine sets of footprints showed the people were wearing only socks, a single shoe, and even some that were completely barefoot. 
There is no evidence of a struggle, no sign of intruders, only their footprints. The track leads down a hill toward the forest and disappear after about 550 yards. One and a half kilometers from their camp, the first two bodies are found. It is Gregory Kravonoshenko and Yuri Doroshenko. Both of them were barefoot and dressed only in their underclothes. They were found at the edge of the woods under a tree. Both of their head, hands were both badly burned and the charred remains of the fire nearby. The branches of the tree showed signs of breakage up to 16 feet up. Investigators speculated that perhaps one of them tried to climb to get a better vantage point. Another thousand feet away from where the first two bodies were found were remains of Dyatlov and his on his back with his face looking toward the direction of the camp. One hand clutching a branch. And he has a weapon? have no idea yeah 180 meters um, approximately 590 feet away towards the tent Rustim Slobodin Slobodin was discovered and 150 meters from him Lizina Komorgorova Komorgorova okay they looked as if they had been trying desperately to get back to the tent but died trying all five had died of sudden and rapid hypothermia and Slobodin had fra- had a fractured skull, but his death was also caused by hypothermia. And probably, um, if it wasn't for the hypothermia, he would have probably survived the fracture. Yeah. About two months later, on May 4th, the remaining skiers were found. Wow. Two months. Yeah. Buried under 13 feet of snow in a ravine. About 250 feet away from the tree where their friends had been found. Um, Nicholas Thisbo, Ludmila Dubinina... Alex Kolovatov, Alex Zolotaryov, and they had not died of hyperthermia. They died from massive injuries that remain a mystery. They were better dressed than the others. Thibodeau's skull had been brutally crushed, and both Dubinina and Zolotaryov had numerous broken ribs, but neither showed any external wounds of any kind. Both Lyudmila and Alexander Zolotaryov Oh my God, I'm butchering these. Sorry, guys. Suffered major impact damage to their chests. The doctors claimed that the force required to cause such damage would have been comparative to a car crash. Dubanina, who was missing her tongue, eyes, part of her lips, as well as facial tissue, and fragment of skull bone. She also had extensive skin maceration on the hands. It was claimed that Dubanina was found lying face down on a small stream that ran under the snow and that her external injuries were in line with putrefaction in a wet environment and were unlikely to be related to her death. But photographs of her corpse clearly showed her body was found kneeling against a large boulder away from the running water. Mm, What I don't think would be plausible about that is that in snow it takes quite a long time for a body to decompose. Right. So how would a body decompose within two two weeks? Or two, what was it, two months? Well, yeah, it's a few months now. It's okay. a couple months from the incident, probably three months from when they they died. And especially when buried under 13 feet of snow, you know, you wouldn't think that putrefaction would be a factor. I didn't think of that. Hmm. The investigation closed after determining the deaths were not intentional and were the result of an unknown elemental force which they were unable to overcome despite many unanswered questions the investigation was closed by the end of the month and the case files locked in a secret archive 
Skiers and other hikers were barred from the area for the next three years without explanation. And that lends to all the theories that come after, like it, just the secrecy surrounding it. For everyone who has uh, watched Ancient Aliens, I'm thinking right now of the guy with the crazy hair just going, aliens. Aliens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the first time I heard about this was Ancient Aliens, actually. Yeah. yeah. And then I started looking it up and went down the rabbit hole on it. So many people believe that the most plausible theory as to what took place that night was a natural event. That a snow slide had partially buried the tent and the party panicked cut their way out and ran to safety of the tree line out of fear of another slide. The members with the fatal injuries had fallen into a deep ravine and the missing facial features were consistent with the natural decay in such an environment. The rest of the group simply died from from the cold due to not being suitably dressed in the sub-zero temperatures, which seems plausible. The only thing that might suggest otherwise is that the investigators found footprints leading from the campsite. The site suffered no damage. However, the footprints could be preserved if there was no precipitation in 25 days before they were discovered. This is supposing the avalanche happened after most of the snowfall. Mm -hmm. And then there's numerous theories that abound as to what may have happened to the hikers. Some blame the Mansi tribes, but the Mansi tribes had a good relations with Russians and did not approach Kolat Siakal in winter because you do not go there. (laughs) You do not go there. Do not go there. There is also no evidence to suggest that anyone was present except the nine hikers. And this theory was soon discarded as well as all theories of external human intervention as there was simply no evidence to suggest that anyone was present at the site but the students themselves so yeah but there's no other footprints but theirs anywhere what i don't understand about that theory is if there was an avalanche and they were able to get it out of the tent right why not grab your clothes, your socks, your shoes, something to stay warm when it's that cold, you know? I mean, if not, just grab it. Just yeah. grab it as you're, and put it on it, it, while you're escaping or yeah. whatever. I don't know. Yeah, that's kind of weird. But as they pointed out, there was no sign of an avalanche. <laughs> yeah. After the classification was lifted on the files in the 1990s, Dr. Boris Bozrozdany who was the doctor who examined the body, states that he believes no man could have inflicted the injuries because the force of the flow was so extreme that it was equal to a car crash at 60 miles per hour, full on, and yet no soft tissue had been damaged. And also, like, if they had fallen into a ravine, like, they show pictures. It doesn't look deep enough to me for them to sustain that kind of... Injury. Internal injury, but who knows? And also... To not be able to get out. Like, if it said that they had fallen into a deep ravine. Right. And then to just be like, oh, we're stuck and not even try and get out of there at all. Right. Other theories suggest that perhaps the group had been attacked by a Yeti and that the damage to the bodies was caused by a Yeti squeezing the people to death. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It's not funny, but it's kind of funny. Especially since they don't find any other footprints anywhere, and Yeti would probably leave, leave some pretty deep footprints. Oh, yeah. Considering um, their uh, supposed size. Anyways, there was no evidence that this was the case, as again, there were no tracks or other evidence of anyone but the students themselves. Medical tests on the bodies had shown very high levels of radiation, and the clothes on the bodies themselves and the clothes of the victims, as if they had been handling radioactive material 
or had been in a fallout zone for a prolonged period. Chief investigator Lev Ivanov described that he took a Geyer counter with him as he approached the site and the device began to sound alarm rapidly. Ivanov also revealed that he had been ordered by senior officials in the government to close the case and classify the findings because of reports by witnesses on neighboring mountains, including the Weather Service and the military, that bright flying spheres had been seen in the area of Kolat Siakl that night. Aliens. Ivanov later commented that he felt that the spheres were connected, if not directly responsible for the deaths of the hikers. The files contain testimony from another group of hikers who had been camping about 30 miles south of the camp who reported the strange balls of light described as balls of fire. Great balls of fire. (laughs) (laughs) To quote Samuel L. Jackson. All right. Floating in the direction of Kolatsiakul on the night of the student on the night the students died. Other reports tell about the shining circular body, a shining circular body flying southwest and northeast that was practically the size of the full moon, described as a blue light, blue white light surrounded by a blue halo. That kind of sounds like a moon on a just a regular night. Yeah. All right. The halo brightly flashed like flashes of lightning. And Okay, that doesn't sound like the moon. Yeah. And when the disc disappeared behind the horizon, the sky in that area lit up for a few minutes before fading away. There have been suggestions that the students have seen these lights and per- may have seen these lights and perhaps this is what they were running from that night. At the funerals of the victims, the first five were found to have deep brown tans while other family members remember that the bodies had a strange orange coloration to their skin and that their hair had turned totally gray as if prematurely aged another theory is infrasound and i thought this one was a very interesting theory um sometimes referred to as low frequency sound is sound that is lower in frequency than 20 hertz or cycles per second the normal limit of human hearing Hearing becomes gradually less sensitive as the frequency decreases, so for humans to perceive infrasound, the sound pressure must be sufficiently high. The ear is the primary organ for sensing the infrasound, but at higher intensities, it is possible to feel infrasound vibrations in various parts of the body. Infrasound is characterized by an ability to cover long distances and get around obstacles with little dissipation. Natural events are known to cause infrasound waves. 20 hertz is considered the normal low frequency limit of human hearing. If conditions are ideal and at a very high volume, a listener will be able to identify tones as low as 12 hertz. Below 10 hertz, it's possible to hear single cycles of the sound along a sensation of pressure at the eardrums sorry i'm getting to it i'll get there (laughs) he's he's looking at me okay get to the point well no no no. i'm listening (laughs) says a study of infrasound has suggested that it may cause feelings of awe or fear in humans it was supposed that since one had no way to perceive these waves that people may attribute this to the supernatural a carmen vortex street or von carmen vortex sheet is a repeating pattern of swirling vortices caused by the unsteady separation of flow of fluid around blunt bodies. It is responsible for such phenomena as the singing of a suspended telephone or power lines. When a single vortex is shed, an asymmetrical flow pattern forms around the body and changes the pressure distribution. This means that the alternate 
shedding of vortices can create periodic lateral sideways forces on the body in question, causing it to vibrate. If the vortex shedding frequency is similar to the natural frequency of a body or structure, it causes resonance. It is this force vibration that at the correct frequency causes suspended telephone or power lines to sing. Holatachi Mountain has a symmetrical dome-shaped summit, which is ideal for a Carmen Vortex Street. These small tornadoes are created when a wind of certain speed hits blunt objects of a particular shape or size. Twin vortices spin off both sides of the obstructing object. These tornadoes create both infrasound and an ear-splitting roar that may have compared to the sound of a freight train. I'm thinking about like the way my car is shaped and when the windows are down just a little bit and that weird sound that you hear. Mm -hmm. And it's just like so awful that we have to like roll up the windows in the back of the car. It like pressurizes the sound and it like makes your eardrums feel almost as if they're vibrating. Yeah. So I wonder if this is anything like that. Um, Twin vortices spin off both sides of the obstructing object. These tornadoes create both infrasound and an ear-splitting roar that may have compared to the sound of a freight train. Interesting. I wonder if that's what they thought they were hearing when they were there there at all. Yeah, you never know. It says the theory is that a Carmen Vortex Street going around the Hotachi, Holotachi. Okay, I've been saying that completely wrong. Holotachal. (laughs) mountains created infrasound with the effect it has on humans it is believed that the campers fled after suffering from these and hearing the wind in the distance the pass the group traveled through to get to their final campsite was named dayatlaf after their leader and as for what really happened that night we will never know for sure was it a simple matter of a small snow slide panicking the group or something more sinister at play here? You know, I'd seen some of the pictures of the victims and if I remember correctly, like some of their faces were yeah, half burned off. And missing eyeballs. Yeah. And tongues and yeah. Only one. She was, yeah. She, was yeah, missing she her, looked that way. Yeah, she was missing her eyeballs and her t- and her tongue was gone. Did they ever say that maybe like a predator, like a wolf or a bear, you know, that was one of the theories. That was one of the theories. And considering like how long it had been since um, the incident happened and when they were discovered, discovered, it could have been natural occurrences. I don't know. What do you think? If the aliens. Yes. Because (laughs) for the bodies, as the families say, to have that kind of tan to them, but then also to say that it was putrefaction. Right. A body doesn't discolor that way. It doesn't turn orange. You know, the glow leaves the skin and it becomes just pale and nasty, right. rancid. Right. So you think like maybe some sort of uh, exposure exposure to radiation caused their skin color to change? Yeah, maybe some kind of ionized radiation, almost like a weapon, but maybe not. Maybe a discharge from uh, something pass- passing over them. That's crazy. I don't know. So what do you think of that story? That's one of those big things like, <laughs> you to wanna... me, I really want to believe that it was aliens. Right. I truly do because what else could explain them just running out the way they did? Spirits? Who knows? I think it was like a haunted pass. I didn't find anything like that, that it was like a haunted. I did they ever uh, explain why the two guys were found together not too far, why their hands um, were burned? One of the theories is that because... Th- 
you know, at the rate that the, of speed that they ran out of the tent, these two probably didn't have ch- a chance to get their clothes on. Maybe they woke up, they were the last to get up, and they they barely had enough time to get out of the tent, but they had the least amount of clothes on. They said so, that their hands were burned, right? Yeah. So one of the theories that I heard was um, since they had the least amount of clo- clothing on and were barefoot, they're the one. They stayed at the the tree and were trying to build a fire. Oh, okay. And the other people went ahead of them and... Got lost. Yeah, got lost mm. along the way. And they never made it back to each other, all of them. They just got all split up. I know that if you are running in sub-zero temperatures for prolonged periods, your lungs can actually just collapse from the cold air you're breathing right. in. So maybe that's what ended up happening to them. But to that whole the whole burned hands thing... Right. Like... You're smart enough not to stick your hands straight yeah, into a fire. Yeah, what caused that? So that, I don't know. That kind of lends itself to the theory that maybe something did catch on fire in the tent. When did they discover anything that was burned in the tent? Or was the tent just buried under snow? The tent was just buried under snow. Uh, yeah. I don't I don't know that there was actually any evidence. Can we look up some pictures real quick just to see? Um, I can. Hold on just a second. Just his face. I mean, I don't know if this is one of the people that was, yeah, probably one of the ones that was discovered like two months down the line. Right. Because she's better clothed. But it looks like her nose is missing and like her face was just partially melted almost. Yeah, that, yeah that's the one that was missing her tongue. Yeah, and if they ruled her death as just from being exposed, then why shut the place or shut the whole pass down yeah, for that's, three years? Yeah, and that, that lends to rumors, you know, people are going to start speculating. Here's a picture of... Uh, the monument that was, and I'll put this up on Instagram, that was dedicated to them, all of the hikers. Nine people in total? Yeah. Really sad. They were all very young. They're like around your age. I think the oldest one was like 37, but the rest were like 22, 23, 24. Wow. Like around, they're all very, very young. Yeah. But yeah. That was my story. That's that story. And let's see, what else do I have? Oh, we also got somebody that wrote us a story sent a story in so i decided i was going to read that as well pull it up here really quick and do you want to read it um sure this is from bianca so oh. just start there all right so i had a friend when i was a teen that was a wiccan she claimed to have powers that she was still learning to control i didn't 100 percent believe her because i thought she was just another crazy white girl from the mountains Anyways, we were hanging out one night, and we went walking towards a field behind my housing track on an unlit road. Why? I don't know. As we were a few yards away from reaching the field, she gasps, grabs me, and starts running back towards my house. I start booking it because I don't know what the hell is going on. (laughs) (laughs) But then I hear sounds like several claws running on asphalt behind us. Oh, Oh, hell no. Like a dog or a pit bull running after me. (laughs) I was too scared to look behind us. I've seen too many horror films. So I continued running for my life. We reached my street where streetlights were, and we stopped running. I finally looked back, and nothing was there. We walked the rest of the way home. I would have been sprinting home if that were me. I'd think that something was hunting me down. Right. We walked the rest of the way home and sat on the curb. I asked her what the fuck just happened, and she <laughs> said that, she, that the werewolves had found her and she needed to summon witches for protection. Fucking werewolves. What the fuck? <laughs> While she was doing that, I walked back up to the corner of the street with a flashlight to see if there was anything on that road. Still nothing. I came back and sat with her, and suddenly a gust of wind hit my, my trees. Mind you, there was no wind the whole night. She looks up and says, they're here. <laughs> what? 
the... Normally, that would have caused me more panic, but it didn't. I actually felt safe. Nothing weird or scary happened for the rest of the night. I have no explanations for what I experienced. It still boggles me to this day. I am boggled as well. Bianca, the fact that you walked back with a flashlight to see if there was something there, you had (laughs) balls, girl. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, she does. So that was that, that story. Anyways, thank you for filling in no and problem. being my co-host tonight. The show must go on. I just want to mention that um, I wanted to make sure that we recorded tonight and got some stories out because we are going to have a break um, during De- December because, you know, the holidays and everything. And we got a lot going on between Yvette and myself. So we are going to take a break and we'll probably be back early January. But we have a few more shows until then. So... Um, just wanted to let you guys know. Thank you, Mario, for no joining problem. me. I wish I could have said more. I know this is my first time on here. I'm a little <laughs> bit nervous. No, you did good. Hey, guys, let us know how Mario did tonight. <laughs> um, give us some feedback. Um, you, you can visit our website at www.tipsy-tales.com. And you can also email us at tipsy underscore tales at yahoo.com and we're also on instagram and twitter and facebook so give us some feedback let us know what you guys think of the show um i yvette and i have mentioned um in the past that we have some shirts that we're working on we have a prototype and we'll put some pictures up of that as well also don't forget to rate review and subscribe you guys and let us know how we're doing thanks all right Thank you, Mario. No problem, Mom. I love you. I love you, too. (laughs) (laughs) Have a good night, you guys. Good night. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tipsy Tales. Music by Jesse Biscata. Artwork by Sergio Hernandez. And if you're listening on iTunes, please don't forget to rate and review. Thanks.